Welcome to Our Sick Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. I'm Lavinia. I'm Charlotte. I'm Sally. And I'm Gemma. And we'll all be bringing you episodes. But we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies to local grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? Welcome back to our Sick Society podcast. I'm Charlotte Woodhead, lecturer in Society and Mental Health at the ESRC Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's College London. In this episode, we're asking, what is society's role in refugee and asylum seeker mental health in the UK? What are the systems and the structures which affect their mental health and their access to support? And importantly, how can we shift the narrative to change the way we view and support refugees and asylum seekers? We'll be hearing from Abigail Oyadele, Zara Seff and Hannah Kiesler, who are also from the Centre for Society and Mental Health. I'm from Vidi Bassi and Catriona Scott, who work with LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers at Metro Charity. I'll let them introduce themselves in more detail. Yes, hi. So my name is Hannah Kinsler. I'm an Associate Professor in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine and Co-Director of the ESRC Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's College London. I am an anthropologist by training and explore how systematic violence, ethnic conflict, and complex emergencies intersect with health and mental health outcomes of people living in vulnerable circumstances, including refugees. I conduct research in the UK, Kosovo, and the occupied Palestinian territory. Hello, my name is Abigail Oyadele, and I'm a final year undergraduate global health and social medicine student. And I'm also working as a research assistant on the marginalized community stream at the center. I was drawn to the centre's work on the mental health of refugees and asylum seekers because I've been involved in community organising around immigration issues and my dissertation research explored racial inequalities in mental health services. Hi, I'm Zara Asif. I'm a research assistant on the Marginalised Communities Programme at the Centre for Society and Mental Health. I have a background in public health and global mental health, including previous work with refugees and migrants in accessing healthcare in the UK and NHS charging regulations. My work has involved conducting research on access to mental health and psychosocial support among refugees and displaced populations in the Eastern Mediterranean region and on productivity losses due to mental ill health among refugees and migrants in Lebanon. So my name is Catriona and I work for Metro Charity within their LGBT mental health drop-in. Metro is a charity based in London in the South East, which focuses around issues of equality and diversity. Hi, I am Vidhi Bassi and I am the LGBT mental health advice and advocacy worker at Metro, working specifically with asylum seekers, providing individual and group support. So first of all, for any listeners who might not actually be sure, I asked Hannah to outline for us what the difference is between the terms refugee and asylum seeker. So who is a refugee? 
According to Article 1 of the 1951 Refugee Convention, and I want to quote here, I pulled up the quote because obviously I don't know it by heart, so I'm going to read it here. A refugee is a person who is outside his, her country of nationality or habitual residence, has a well-founded fear of persecution because of his, her race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, and is unable or unwilling to avail himself, herself, of the protection of that country or to return there for fear of persecution. So this is the definition as it is printed in the Refugee Convention. When arriving in a host country like the UK, refugees have to prove their refugee status during long and insecure asylum processes. Considered then asylum seekers, they are framed as individuals who have sought international protection and whose claims for refugee status have not yet been determined. The data cited on the Mental Health Foundation website suggests that asylum seekers and refugees are more likely to experience poor mental health than the local population, including higher rates of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, as well as other anxiety disorders. And that this increased vulnerability is linked to their experiences pre-migration, to what happens during the process of entering and applying to stay in the UK, as well as to the social conditions they face once here. So before going into more detail, I asked Hannah if she could give us an overview of the situation here in the UK and what some of the issues at different stages of the refugee or asylum-seeking process are, which are likely to impact upon people's mental health. Very important question. So I would say we start by setting the scene. The world is facing the largest refugee crisis on record. The latest estimates by UNHCR are that there are about 80 million forcibly displaced persons worldwide. 85% of those refugees are hosted by neighboring low and middle income countries who struggle themselves to provide services to their own populations, while only a comparatively small number are spread across Europe and North America. So when we speak about a refugee crisis, it is important to keep in mind that the crisis is not in Europe or North America. In fact, the UK welcomes only very few refugees and in comparison to other European countries, offers way less generous asylum support. So in terms of stages of the migration cycle, it is important to state that refugees often undergo extraordinary hardship before they arrive in a host country, such as the UK. In their home countries, they may be exposed to poverty, food shortage and loss, bereavement due to or related to armed conflict and violence. On their journey, refugees may encounter horrific experiences, such as starvation, maltreatment and exploitation, trafficking, rape and detention. When they arrive in a host country like the UK, refugees often live in precarious and uncertain conditions until asylum is granted. Refugees have the added challenge of adapting to a new sociocultural environment, which can be difficult due to racism, discrimination and marginalization. The traumas of war are compounded by the suffering related to racism and discrimination, in addition to experiences of poverty, poor living and working conditions, unemployment, and access to public services like education and healthcare. All these factors have been linked to poor health and mental health, with refugees experiencing relatively high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anxiety, and other more severe mental illnesses. 
I'm particularly interested in what happens to LGBTQ plus people who've sought asylum and refugee status on the grounds of their sexual orientation or gender identity. These people will have potentially been exposed to many of the stresses pre, during and post-migration mentioned by Hannah. But the process of seeking asylum can be particularly detrimental to this group. At Metro Charity, Catriona and Vidi have worked closely with LGBTQ plus refugees and asylum seekers. And here's Vidi describing more about why people seek asylum on these grounds. LGBT asylum seekers in the UK usually come from countries where they are stigmatised, criminalised and the violence they face is also legitimised by their communities. So individuals often face religious and cultural persecution for their sexual orientation or gender identity. The persecution often lasts for years and in some cases starting from childhood. There are multiple ways they face persecution like relentless harassment, physical and psychological abuse, death threats, not being allowed to access places of worship, sexual assaults, blackmail, destruction of personal and business property, and even imprisonment. Families may see LGBT individuals as a burden who brings shame to them and perpetrate forced marriage or conversion therapy on them. So you see, when homosexuality is criminalized in the justice system, the acts of violence are perpetrated with impunity by government officials, religious leaders, and community at large. Overall, the implications are medical, social, psychological, and legal. The impact of inescapable persecution and discrimination amplifies the psychological effects presenting in complex mental illness and societal ideation in the asylum seekers. Often the individuals also report having feelings of intense shame, self-blame and internalised homophobia. So we know that experiences in their host countries, in travelling to Europe or the UK, and in integrating and adapting to a new environment once here can have considerable implications for people's mental health. But one thing that struck me is that the part of this process which we as a society have the most immediate control over is the way people are treated and supported on arrival at our border. So I wanted to hear more about what happens to people when they arrive in the UK and how that directly impacts their mental health on top of and exacerbating the experiences which led them to seek asylum in the first place. So the time in waiting until their status as refugees is confirmed is extraordinarily distressing and can last months, even years, during which asylum seekers live in limbo. And so being in limbo, not knowing whether to settle or not, whether to build social connections or not, for such a long time has been shown to affect refugees' mental health and physical well-being. So entering the country in which you're seeking asylum... And the time waiting to hear an outcome from your application is harmful to mental health and well-being. But I wanted to hear more about the actual process of applying. So going back to LGBTQ plus asylum seekers, a really concerning fact is that despite the health, social and legal impact of the persecution from which they're fleeing, people seeking asylum on these grounds are the least likely to have their applications approved in the UK. I asked Catriona if she could say more about why this is. So for anyone making an asylum application, they have to demonstrate two things, and that's that they have a well-founded fear of persecution in their country of origin, and that this persecution relates to them being a member of a particular social group. So what this means for LGBT people is that they have to prove to Home Office officials that they are LGBT. 
So all asylum applicants go through what's called a main or substantive interview, where they're asked why they've claimed, along with questions about how they came to know that they were LGBT, what intimate relationships they might have had, and how people in their community have reacted to them. So within these interviews, there is a pressure to provide a narrative account of their identity, which often relies on stereotypical Western notions of what being LGBT should look like. Claimants are also encouraged to provide evidence to support their claims, which again can be very difficult as they've often had to hide anything to do with this aspect of their identity, things like photos or letters from past relationships. Claimants' credibility is then assessed by the Home Office based on how coherent and consistent they feel their accounts are. And as Vidi mentioned, talking to officials about this personal aspect of their life can bring up intense feelings of shame and stigma. And recalling traumatic events can be incredibly painful and people may struggle with remembering dates which can sadly then be seen as inconsistencies within their accounts. And whereas claims should be assessed on the sort of reasonable likelihood of them being true, there's often a much higher standard of proof and scrutiny that's applied. And one example of this that we see with people we work with is where claimants do provide evidence of relationships they've had whilst being safe in the UK or they provide evidence of their involvement within the LGBT community and seen here. And then this is labelled as self-serving by decision-makers and this evidence can even be dismissed. And one other issue LGBT claimants face is that they often don't realise they can make an asylum application on these grounds. And so it's often only once they've been in the UK for a certain amount of time they might kind of hear about this and make their application. And then that sort of delay in sort of applying can be used to question their credibility. So we've heard about the great challenges that LGBTQ plus communities might face in their home country. How might, once they've arrived in the UK, how might this process in of itself affect their mental health? While we just talked about the pre-flight trauma asylum seekers face in their home countries, the process of asylum seeking can present its own mental health challenges to these individuals. They are asked by the officials to recount the experiences they had in their own country that led them to leave and seek asylum in the UK. LGBT asylum seekers often feel shame and fear when discussing their sexual orientation or gender identity because of the taboo nature of it in their home countries. The pressure to disclose both socially and in the asylum process can be extremely stressful and may also cause individuals to avoid accessing support and services altogether. Systemic discrimination and individual assumptions placed by the asylum officers can trigger memories of abuse faced in the home countries. With the risk of re-traumatization or creating new psychological trauma that contributes to further isolation for these individuals. The asylum officers and immigration judges may not believe that the applicant is truly LGBT. They can face judgments due to their perceived credibility or being misinterpreted due to language barriers and cultural barriers that can contribute to stress and further feelings of helplessness and disempowerment for the asylum seekers. Lastly, it may be difficult for some asylum seekers to prove their sexual orientation due to the deeply entrenched survival strategies that they have developed, such as hiding their sexual identity 
that was necessary for them to survive in their country of origin. Often in our work at Metro, clients report not being able to remember things or feel like their minds just aren't working. This can be a result of PTSD where clients' memory and cognition are affected. This can also invoke further anxiety in clients as they fear this might happen during the asylum interviews and that they won't be able to recall the memories accurately. Listening to these experiences of seeking asylum on the grounds of LGBTQ plus status really highlighted to me some of the ways in which prejudice, stigma and discrimination permeate the application process. And there seems to be just really little consideration of the trauma and re-traumatising effects even just involved in applying, which can influence the outcomes of their application. Like Hannah, Catriona identified the time during which people are waiting for decisions as a hugely stressful and depersonalising period. And this culture of disbelief in the Home Office contributing to the hostile environment. So it sounds like the odds are stacked against them in some ways. In your opinion, what could be done to make this fairer and less re-traumatising for people? Considering the, the mental health needs that we've just mentioned, it's really important that asylum seekers can have access to trauma-informed therapeutic services which are going to be culturally sensitive as well as LGBT inclusive to sort of support them through this journey. And some of the real practical barriers that people we work with face is not being able to access adequate legal aid or representation for their cases. Also, not being able to work has a really profound impact and is the cause of many people living in destitution or poverty. And a lot of asylum seekers come from really skilled professions and backgrounds and they can feel like their lives are being put on limbo while they're waiting anything from up to two, three or four years or more for the outcome of their decisions. And this really heightens feelings of being invisible within society and impacts upon people's mental health and their self-esteem. So as mentioned, improving the length of time people are waiting for their decisions would be really beneficial to their mental health. And if anyone is interested in reading a bit more about the decision-making processes, there's a fantastic report which was published in 2019 by a group of asylum and migrant charities called Lessons Not Learned. And this discusses the need for reforms within the Home Office. And in this report, they highlight how the Windrush scandal in 2018 was a shocking illustration of the sort of culture of disbelief that exists within the Home Office. And it's this sort of culture of disbelief which these really vulnerable asylum seekers also have to contend with. I asked Zara and Abigail, having started the asylum seeking process, what kinds of support are available for people in the UK which might help them through this period? And what are some of the challenges they might experience in accessing this help? Support and level of support largely depends on the refugee's official immigration status. It differs whether you're a registered refugee, an asylum seeker, or an undocumented migrant. Primary care in general is accessible to all, no matter their ethnicity or immigration status, and is free of charge. Secondary care, on the other hand, can be accessed through referrals via their GP, but is chargeable depending on the type of services that they're accessing. The barriers to accessing these services, however, begins already with primary care as Often GP surgeries ask for documentation when registering refugees and asylum seekers, such as proof of ID and proof of address. And it is mostly the case that refugees and undocumented migrants do not have these. 
And so there's a delay in accessing the service. In terms of secondary care, the NHS charging regulations for overseas visitors are a huge barrier as they result in them occurring large sums of fees, which then they're unable to pay. And then this plunges them into debt as well. When refugees and undocumented migrants are aware of these charges, they're unlikely to access healthcare or delayed treatment, which has detrimental effects on their physical and mental health. Asking for documentation to access healthcare and the current charging regulations perpetuate the anti-immigration values that exist at the structural level in the UK. This then creates fear amongst refugees, which is largely to do with them being found, being detained or being deported when it comes to accessing physical or mental health care in the UK. And to follow on from what Zara has just said, outside of the NHS, there are many third sector organisations offering a wide range of services across the spectrum of mental health and psychosocial support. And something that we've noticed from our interviews with service providers is that offering services like talking therapies to refugees or explicitly stating that there is support available for those with depression or anxiety, it may not be the best way to attract refugees to these services, especially those with milder forms of mental distress. This, we were explained, is mainly related to stigma. So if someone is not coming to appointments, this does not necessarily mean that they don't want support. It might mean that they experience stigma or are struggling to come out of the house or the services they are being given just aren't appropriate. So the challenge is really understanding people rather than making superficial assumptions. And that in itself can be hard when organisations are overstretched and under-resourced. But the services that appear to be more welcomed are those that address the social determinants that cause feelings of depression or anxiety. So this includes services that provide English classes, employment support, storytelling groups, because although it may not seem like it, these services function as mental health and psychosocial support in that they decrease distress and increase self-worth and agency. So just before we move on, if there is anyone listening who would like to find out about community organisations supporting LGBTQ plus refugees and asylum seekers in particular, here's Catriona's suggestions on where to go. There can be a, a sort of lack of awareness about issues to do with asylum in general and I think even within the LGBT community, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the asylum process. So if people are keen to find out a little bit more about it, there are some fantastic charities which sort of specialise in working with LGBT asylum seekers. So there's the organisation, the UK Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group. There's the charities Micro Rainbow International, Say It Loud Club. And then there's also some of the other sort of LGBT charities like Mind Outcome and London Friend that have done work with these communities as well. So the processes and procedures underpinning this hostile environment affect people's health, their well-being, their sense of self, their social and economic status, and is also a deterrent to seeking support, which could actually help them manage this stressful period. It seems that services which offer more practical and social support may be more accessible and may have knock-on positive effects on mental health as well. I suppose the thing is, these are likely to exist outside of the statutory sector or formal services such as the NHS, within the voluntary and community sector. So I asked Zara and Abigail, what could we learn from community organisations working with refugees and asylum seekers to offer better support? 
these community organisations are staffed by people who have spent years working closely with refugees and asylum seekers. And many of them have lived experience themselves of migration and dealing with the UK immigration system. So it's really important that their expertise and insights are not overlooked by policymakers. More than just being a community engagement tick box in policy research, they should play a more central role in the construction of policy around immigration and health. I also think we can learn a lot from the determination of these organisations because they're really working against the grain in terms of the current political climate. And though they face many challenges, they persevere in their advocacy efforts and in the delivery of services. And I've got a quote here from one service provider who we interviewed, and she told us that the hostile environment has kind of permeated so many different areas and sectors. And there's often this mistrust that these people actually are genuine. And by that, she means refugees are actually genuine and it's really very difficult to battle and to advocate for them. So this determination and commitment is incredibly inspiring for anyone like me who wants to create change through research and activism. Just to add to that really, these organisations in addition to hearing the voices of refugees also work directly against the current guidelines and anti-immigration laws that are in place in the UK. Many of these non-for-profit community organisations act as the first port that many refugees, asylum seekers and undocumented migrants go to when trying to access welfare services such as jobs, housing, shelter, as well as accessing mental and physical health care. I've got another quote from an organisation that works with refugees and it places this point quite well. So I'll just quote them now. Some of our service teasers have been in the UK for 13 odd years without ever having access to care or support. They find out about us and it's their first interaction with any support of any sort that is non-governmental. They're often surprised to discover what they're able to access and what their entitlements are in terms of healthcare. So this really shows that it is important to work with these organizations and take aboard their feedback and their insights to create a more accessible and a more compassionate environment for refugees in the UK. Thank you. So you've each mentioned this term hostile environment in the UK. How can the narrative around refugees and asylum seeking in public discourse be shifted to influence the social conditions into which they're coming to live and to seek safety? The language used by governments, politicians and media is largely negative when it comes to this so-called refugee crisis. This then gives rise to high levels of public anxiety about immigration and asylum and shifts their overall attitudes towards refugees and asylum seekers. I think through outreach and campaign work, there is a need to educate the public about refugees and the journeys that they have been through and been on by labeling them with negative stereotypes and taking away their agency by restricting their right to work and their right to access healthcare, it effectively silences these populations. Refugees have often led very successful lives and professions in their home countries. And instead of utilizing these skills, they are actually excluded from these aspects of society, which then negatively impacts their self-esteem and in turn their mental health. One of the organizations that I interviewed stated that because refugee and asylum-seeking populations are so eager to work in the UK and gain back some autonomy, they often ask to lead the community workshops. So things like cooking lessons or maths and English lessons for children. And they really want to be recognized as active agents instead of being reduced to passive recipients of services and welfare. A lot of refugees possess extensive skill sets that they are eager to apply and use and 
really with the idea of giving back to the community that they are integrating into here in the UK. I'm wondering, what does all this mean for policy in the UK? What approaches are needed to better support refugees and asylum seekers? It becomes obvious that mental health support has to be multifaceted and intersectoral rather than just medical. That's where our work comes in and I find is very important because we want to show that one has to tackle the underlying causes of ill health, including discriminatory policies, racism and exclusion. It has to address the social and economic determinants of health. It has to be sensitive towards cultural expressions of distress, help-seeking and healing. And it has to provide meaningful mental health care and social support. So such a holistic approach needs to rest on several pillars of understanding. First, to tackle social determinants requires a political more than a clinical response. Second, the response can't be provided by one sector, like the health sector, alone, but has to be delivered in strong partnership and cooperation across sectors like welfare, housing, education and employment. Third, the cooperation between these sectors has to be built on solidarity, where organizations are willing to give resources because they really understand that they are working towards a common goal to improve the quality of life and health for refugees. And then finally, fourth, generate best practice evidence as part of the interventions so that we can actually learn what works and why, what doesn't and why. Lastly then, I asked Abigail, Hannah and Zara to suggest one or more concrete actions that they think would reduce the burden of mental ill health faced by refugees and asylum seekers in the UK. I would say that we all need to think critically about the things we hear and read about refugees. The worst of the discourse in the media will paint them as liars, independents, as undeserving, as we've already discussed. But instead of just accepting these presentations, we should try and educate ourselves on the reality of the difficult situations refugees are coming from and the barriers they face when they arrive. And whilst doing this, we should view them as full and complex human beings. For me, access to services and support structures are imperative. Health is a basic human right, which should be available to all regardless of their immigration status, race or ethnicity. It is difficult enough navigating around the migration cycle. And I think support structures and governments need to be more mindful of this and show compassion by making access to physical and mental health care more accessible for refugees and migrants. Abigail and Sarah raised such important points. Their call for shared humanity underlies also the points I I want to make. So this recognition of a shared humanity should be the driver for working with rather than for refugees and their their supporters when demanding high level political change that gives everyone, and I mean absolutely everyone, no matter their immigration status, race, gender, class. So it gives everyone a good start in life, meaningful opportunities for work and play, a sufficient income earned through good work. So not just any work dignified living conditions, safety, and the opportunity to chase one's dreams and future aspirations. I'm not naive. This will not come easy nor cheap, but it's an investment worthwhile as we will all be benefiting from this in the short as well as the long term. This seems like a really appropriate point to end on in shifting the narrative and addressing the way in which our policies and procedures directly contribute to people's worsening mental health there's a need to fundamentally remember that people seeking asylum are people. And as Abigail says, deserve to be treated as full and complex human beings. To hear more about mental health during the asylum process, you can watch Changing Policy and Practice to Promote Sanctuary Seeker Mental Health, 
That's a short video by Sahal Janasari on the Centre for Society and Mental Health YouTube channel. And you can find a link to that in the episode information. You've been listening to R6 Society with Abigail, Zara, Hannah, and Vidi and Catriona from Metro Charity. The presenter was Charlotte Woodhead. Production support provided by Verity Buckley. The producer was Buddy Peeps. R6 Society is a King's College London initiative and was funded by its ESRC Impact Acceleration account.